Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're taking a look at Qatar at the 2022 World Cup. Much has has been and will continue to be written and said about the host nation itself, the human rights abuses, hosting restrictions, hotel shortages, much, much more. We've talked about all of that on the show. We'll continue to do so as we edge closer to the tournament itself. Less time has been spent, less ink as well, on the Qatar national team itself, a team that has never qualified for the World Cup before, but will now be there automatically as the host. What is their soccer history? How have they prepared for their moment on the global stage? What should we we expect from them in terms of style and results. We're going to get into that today. To answer those and many other questions, I have with me Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Ahoy. And Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hello, Taylor Rutwell. Hello. All right. We, as I said, have talked a lot about Qatar hosting the Qatar World Cup, the bid process. Joe, we have talked a little bit about Qatar because they participated in that Gold Cup way back when, a.k.a. not that long ago. Uh, But I don't think even then we really became as familiar as we could have been because it was still a team that we didn't know that much about. We didn't expect them to go deep. They ended up third in that competition. So let's take a look at their history, shall we? Let's start with the beginning. Uh, I think the sport was brought to the country by foreign oil, oil workers in the 1940s. They joined FIFA in 1970, played their first official match that same year. Joe, how have things gone since 1970? So in recent years, things have gone well for Qatar. And we'll talk about some of the reasons, some of the the questionable Mm -hmm. reasons behind why that's the case, even with the on-field stuff. But I I think if you're looking up to, I don't know, 2010, 2014, up until maybe around a decade ago, we saw really slow progress. Progress from a fledgling soccer nation to a still pretty mediocre soccer nation that mm-hmm. has never qualified for a World Cup on its own merit. They never made it to a World Cup. They won their first Asian Cup in 2019. And again, that that's recent history at this point, just a few years ago as we're recording now in, in 2022. So to take us back to the beginning, you already mentioned uh, joining FIFA. About 10 years before then, the Qatar Football Association was formed. They played their first official game in 1970 against Bahrain, which is a 2-1 loss. And losing is kind of a, a regular theme, which is not all that surprising, right? Qatar is not a big country. There are not very many people that live there. They they did not have this, from day one, soccer global superpower. And even today, they don't, they don't have that with all of the billions and billions, and that's not an exaggeration, of, of dollars that they put into their national team. So their first win finally came in, in 1974 over Oman. They finished third in the Gulf Cup that year. And early on in the 70s and 80s, and, and even even past that, the Gulf Cup was kind of Qatar's tournament playing against other teams nearby. It makes sense. They started playing some World Cup qualifiers in the late 70s. They made it to the Asian Cup. Not, not to the Asian Cup final or winning the Asian Cup, but they made it to the Asian Cup in 1980. Didn't perform all that well. And that, again, that's the theme. They didn't make it out of the preliminary stages of World Cup qualifying in, in, for the 82 or 86 World Cups. They do make it to the final round of World Cup qualifiers in Asia in 1990 and then again in 1998, but they didn't actually make it to the World Cup. And that sort of in contention to qualify for the World Cup from Asia as an underdog and popping up at the Asian Cup when they were qualifying and contending eventually for the Gulf Cup, which is a pretty low quality in the grand scheme of things, soccer competition on the international stage, that pattern continued up through and even past 2010 when mm-hmm. Qatar was awarded the World Cup bid in December of that year for, for 2022, that, that particular World Cup bid. And then we fast forward a little bit and they do start to qualify for 
uh, for the Asian Cup more consistently. They're making it uh, deeper runs in Asian World Cup qualifying. They made it to the final round in 2018, but didn't actually make it to the World Cup for 2018, I should say, not in 2018. Well, it's that pattern. Then you start to see some investment and some engagement in the youth levels and Qatar playing in some FIFA World Youth Tournaments. And that was a theme from earlier on. But now they're they're a little bit more of a known quantity on that stage. So again, I mean, even today, Qatar is not this giant in the soccer sense, but there there wasn't a ton of progress through the 70s and 80s and, and maybe even the 90s. And then now, as the World Cup bid is awarded, you start to see some more investment and, and there are very clear plans starting to come to fruition. And now it's it's a little bit of a different story for Qatar. Yeah. And, and I think it is that 2010 date when they're awarded the World Cup that is... Definitely not the start of it, because in order to win that World Cup, you have to have a lot of planning and maybe some money behind it. Uh, I'll leave that there. But so I think this is part of their long-term plan, is we want to host in 2022. If we make the 2018 World Cup and if we qualify, we're probably ahead of schedule. And they did not, as you said, Joe. But I think it all has been building towards the 2022 iteration. Graham, let's talk about how they've been building, how they've been improving, because it is a team that have been participating in more competitions. There's been a lot of money behind it. They've Mm -hmm. done a lot with player development. What are some things you think have been important in Qatar getting to the point where they might be competitive at a World Cup? So the the first thing I'm going to mention is the Aspire Academy, Mm -hmm. and that's been at the heart of Qatar's preparations for this 2022 World Cup. And the the Aspire Academy isn't just a a football academy. It has programs for multiple sports. I was reading about their their golf program. But as soon as Qatar wins that World Cup bid for the 2022 World Cup, a particular focus is, is applied on soccer for obvious reasons. In terms of its physical existence, it's a huge facility in Doha. It cost over $1 billion to build in the, the mid-2000s. It was frequently used by big clubs and still is frequently used by big clubs as, as a base during pre-season or winter training blocks. So before 2010, which is when the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, that was kind of its its uh, its primary purpose and if you'd read about the Aspire Academy that's that's probably where you had heard it from from teams like Manchester United or Real Madrid or whoever using it in, in the winter predominantly. In terms of the Qatari national team though that the main purpose of the Aspire Academy has been in the production of players and a large number of players in the Qatari national team at this moment in time have come through the Aspire Academy who um, have made almost an industry of, of bringing in young players and putting them in um, age group specific teams from the age of, of 11 and 12 and bringing them up in a, a very specific style of play. They want to play a, a possession game, a, a modern game. They've brought in coaches from around the world to give these players, in theory, the best possible education. Um, and it's worth mentioning that this process of bringing young players into that academy as Joe kind of mentioned there uh, at the start, Qatar is a small country, so there's not a great demographic for them to draw from. So the methods of of them bringing those players in has has drawn a lot of criticism. About 10 years ago, there was some reporting on the Aspire Academy having 6,000 staff and scouts working in a number of African countries, and they were scouting half a million boys aged seven or under and bringing a number of those players, um, of, of those boys, I'm reluctant to call them players, they're not players when they're that age, they're bringing them to Doha to play in the Aspire Academy. Now... All the reporting I have seen says that this is this is legal, that 
Qatar's law and international law allows them to do this. But to me, speaking personally, my personal opinion, this feels very exploitative. And I think Qatar rightly faced a lot of criticism for that for that program. I haven't seen as much evidence of them doing that recently, certainly since those reports emerged. So maybe they have stopped doing it. But the fact that it was part of that program for so long uh, raises doubts in my mind over whether whether they are still doing it. Another part of Qatar's strategy has been just to play lots of matches. So Qatar has played in the, in, the, in the 2021 Gold Cup. They took part in the 2019 Copa America. They took part in UEFA qualification for the World Cup as a ghost team, which was unusual. Basically meant they were placed in Group A and they played those games if they were, as if they were in that group. They just weren't included in, in the final table. And I think that in itself shows the influence of Qatar at the moment because I'm not aware of anything like this happening before. And when you think about it, it's really weird that UEFA, the most powerful confederation in soccer opened up their qualification process like this for Qatar to essentially play friendly matches in but that is <coughs> money part, sorry part, yeah that might have been a factor there Joe you might be onto something um but yeah that has been part of their strategy Qatar also played a lot of friendly matches over the summer and I'm going to read out the names of some of the teams oh, yeah. or all of the teams that they played <laughs> so Linfield Royal Antwerp Real Mallorca Udinese Lazio Fiorentina you may notice something about these teams none of them are national teams Qatar yeah. has, has even been playing club teams to get ready for the 2022 World Cup for another national team that would be difficult because obviously you have clubs not permitting players to leave the clubs for the summer preseason period but I think that also says a lot about just the control that the Qatari FA has over the league and the clubs and obviously there's a centralized system there which makes it a lot easier so everything for the last 10 years and I think we'll come on to the league a little bit later on the show and talking about the quality of the league, but everything has been focused on the national team for the last 10 years. And I, I believe I'm correct in saying that they've had a six-month camp, right, where they shut down the league and teams had to release yes. their players so that they could be fully, fully ready and primed wild. for that World Cup. It, it, this is all... It, this is like if we were in some sort of soccer dystopia where they're the lines between club and country are mm-hmm. so blurred because that, that's what Qatar has done. And in, in a lot of ways... It makes a ton of sense. If they have that much control over the teams and these players, their, their national team players, and they have such a defined pool, which they do, and all of the players have known each other for so long, it, it all just fits together as exactly what you would try to do as a team that doesn't have a lot of really high-level soccer history, has never really had much success on the international level, never won a, a real trophy until 2019. This is what you would do to try to prepare for the biggest moment in your country's sporting history. It all, Graham, you're talking about Qatar playing against these club teams. Qatar basically has built their own club team, and they're the only national team at this level in the top 60 of the FIFA rankings that can afford to do that, but they can because all of their players, literally all of them, play in the domestic league, in the Qatari Stars League. They all play there, and so they have this, uh, this undeniable... Uh, understanding between each other, and a lot of them play on the same teams. There's a couple of dominant teams there in terms of the, the representation on the international level. And they also played at Aspire for years and years and years, even before Qatar was awarded the World Cup bid. I, I don't think it's a coincidence. I'm sure they were in conversation with FIFA about finding ways to get a World Cup in Qatar, and so they were still building even before 2010. But these players played in, in the academy for seven years, and then they go off, and, and they have Qatar has connections to clubs over in in Europe 
And so players can go off and, and play at Qatari affiliated or or teams that have those connections in Europe and Belgium or in, in other places and then come back to the Stars League. So you have that mixture of experience and then they're still coming back to continue that familiarity with each other. It is it is truly wild what they've been, what they've built and how they've gone about doing it. And and again, the money they've spent and the luxury they have to basically start from scratch. Yeah, the, the FA has been around for a long time in Qatar. I mean, not long compared to other countries, but still a relatively long time, decades and decades. And sure, this is all still a relatively recent thing in the whole grand scheme of things. But they have basically started from scratch with an infinite budget. And as far as a plan goes to build a team that's not going to get played off the field in mm-hmm. Qatar, if that's the goal, they have they have accomplished that goal. Yeah, I would agree. And I would like to talk more about the Aspire Academy and some of the issues there. But I would say to the point we're we're making with this camp, with the kind of control they have to be able to have these players playing for the national team for so long, there is precedent because this is what the United States did before the 94 World Cup. Uh, When the league wasn't, when we didn't have MLS, but you had players coming back to the United States, they basically functioned as a club team. They played friendly. I remember them playing Derby County at one point. They played friendlies against club teams and international teams, and it's why so many of those players have so many caps uh, to their name. And that does play a huge part in having this like very very tightly knit team go into that 94 World Cup, a, a tournament where I think a lot of people thought they wouldn't get out of the group. They would be kind of embarrassed. And instead, they make it out and I, a little help uh, along the way, but I, I think there is this idea that if you get the squad all together, you get them with a, just a ton of experience the way a club team would, I think you then put them in a much stronger position. And I think uh, Qatar have done just that and really have helped them develop some some good players. But then there are the other issues. Let's take a break and let's get back to talking about Aspire in just a second. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We're talking about the Qatar national team and how they have gotten to where they are. And a lot of it does, I think, have to do with the Aspire Academy that Graham talked about. It has a lot to do with recruiting and developing young players and naturalizing those players. And that's where I would like us next to go, because there was a period of time when it was not particularly subtle. Uh, the Qatari FA offered Brazilian striker Ailton, uh, yeah. then the top scorer in the German Bundesliga, $1 million to come and play for <laughs> Qatar in 2004, even though he never set foot in the country. That leads to naturalization reforms <laughs> by FIFA to make sure that that type of uh, deal can't happen. Graham, I'm, I'm guessing you read about this too? Yeah, and I I almost, I, I not almost, I do prefer this method of just being so brazen, being like, <laughs> yeah, we'll give you citizenship and a million dollars to play for us. And obviously FIFA said that you couldn't do that and Ailton didn't play for Qatar. The other thing about this was I remember Ailton being very good in the Bundesliga and was kind of shocked that he never got a cap for Brazil. So I guess there was some logic in it from Qatar that he wasn't, he wasn't cap tied and he was maybe one of the better players around in the world so that they could potentially not naturalized but yeah i i kind of enjoy just how brazen this was yeah and so it leads to some reforms fifa uh makes the change that a player must live in their new country for five years continuously before they can play for the national team uh and when you look at the current qatar roster you see all players playing domestically as we've talked about there's uh 
multiple clubs, but one club in particular represented. But when you look at where many of the players were born, uh, you have Amoez Ali, born in Sudan, Roro, not surprisingly, not born in Qatar, but in Portugal. Bassam al-Rawi is born in Iraq. His father played for the Iraqi national team. So too did Ahmed Suhails. Uh, and, and it goes from there. And some of them are someone like Ahmed uh, Al-Aldin was born in Egypt, but moved to Qatar when he was 10 because his family moved there. His dad got a job. That, to me, is normal. You're going to have immigration. You're going to feel connected to the new country or the country where you kind of came of age. But for other players, it's moving to Qatar when they're 18, 19, 20, 21. And then this process occurs. And Joe, that's where it starts to feel, if not nefarious, then at the very least, a little bit of the ick. Well, and I'm trying to separate in my mind or I'm trying to determine in my mind where the the line is which is here because Mm -hmm. we've talked about on on tss multiple times artur who plays for the columbus crew Mm -hmm. he is i think he's brazilian shoot i should know this but i'm just kind of going off the cuff here he is not uh, naturally an american citizen but he's been playing in mls for a while and we we get listener questions every now and then about you know when artur has has spent enough time in the u.s to to earn that level of naturalization you know should the u.s call him up how could he help the u.s And, and i don't really bat an eye about some of those things and maybe that's just because I'm, I'm invested in the U.S. men's national team and in soccer in the United States and wanting to see those things grow. Maybe it's maybe it's not. Maybe that doesn't sound the alarm bells in my head because you know our tour is coming to MLS to to make a career at the club level. And if the international stuff happens, great. And with Qatar, it feels like the the club scene is just almost this facade for the national team and it's all with the goal of pumping players in and it's all about 2022 and it's all about spending money to make that a success for Qatar and for its image and the context is different so maybe that's why I feel more strange talking about Qatar in this way I, I don't know exactly what it is and maybe you guys feel differently or, or maybe you can articulate that that difference better maybe there's no difference at all but there are very clearly a couple of different paths that Qatar has mm-hmm. used to naturalize players. And, and Taylor, you're getting at this. One of them is to have pros or players who have come through academies of other countries come to Qatar for the money to be there for five years. And there's this plan that is that is set out to have them play in Qatar. And Kareem Boudiaf is is one option here. He plays for Qatar as their number six. And he is he was born in France and plays in multiple different French academies and then moves there. Taylor, you mentioned Roro already. I don't need to dive back into that. They've done this with Brazilians, with Uruguayans, with, with French-Algerian background. I mean, they have done this with players from all over the world. And the other option is, and we kind of talked about this already too, is scouting younger players using what, what they call the Football Dreams Project, which is exactly what it feels like Qatar would call this thing, doesn't it? I mean, that is just right on brand. They have satellite <laughs> academies in Senegal. They scout all throughout the world, Asia, Latin America, Africa. And, and there are, are diving into those areas as well. As of December of 2021, Qatar's national team squad included 10 players who were born outside of the country. So you can see this naturalization strategy popping up here. You have Ghana, Sudan, Egypt, France, Bahrain, Iraq, Algeria, Portugal, all, all of those nations were represented in some ways in Qatar's squad. So they, they remain largely uh, reliant, or at least um, a good chunk mm-hmm. of their national team players yeah. are, are coming through these different backgrounds. And, and that latter part of the strategy you mentioned there, Joe, is the, is the part that doesn't sit well with me. Because let's put aside the concerns about the human rights of these players and uh, any kind of exploitation of them, which is obviously a a, a massive concern. I'd say that's the primary concern, but let's just say Qatar is treating them correctly as they should. 
it feels like scouting players with absolutely no connection, even at that young age, with no connection to Qatar, just goes against the spirit of international soccer at, yeah, its, it, at its core. So when you have players who have played in a country, and we had it in Scotland as well, going back to the mid-2000s, there was a, an Italian defender who played for Rangers called Lorenzo Amoruso, right? And he was he was very good for Rangers for a number of years. Never got an Italian cap. And it kind of felt like after a specific period of time that he got Scottish culture and he was very much a Scottish football figure. And and so I think a lot of people were open to him maybe playing for Scotland. And I can imagine there are, there are players who have played in Qatar for such a long time that that feels like a natural progression yeah. for them to play for Qatar. When you're scouting players in other countries that don't have that connection, that for me is when it becomes club football. That's not yeah, international exactly. soccer. So that's the difference for me. I mean, and, and that that's, sorry Taylor, that's the key distinction. Because I, I, as you're talking there, Graham, I'm thinking through La Masia as an example. They have satellite academies that are, are not nearly the same thing, but they have an academy 45 minutes away from where I am in, in Casa Grande, Arizona. That is massive and has developed some really good players. And there's been talk and maybe it's never going to happen about players like Caden Clark or Juliana Rajo going to play at La Masia and going to Barcelona and Barcelona looking for players through those satellite academies. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. The difference in what is what is strange about Qatar's process is it's not really with the idea of going to play for a club team, right? This is an academy that feeds directly into the national team setup. And that is that's the differentiating factor that makes this all strange. Yeah, I mean... I'll, I'll say this, and I the TSS fire truck of lawyers should prepare themselves. Graham, you can step away from the mic if you need to. I mean, <laughs> there there is, and and I want to talk about the naturalization process more broadly because I I think Joe, you have sort of done a good job of of making a point that there is a difference between a player who feels welcomed into a country, Alfonso Davies, born in a refugee camp, but identifies with Canada as a place where he kind of made his home that he wants to represent. Marco Senna, born in Brazil, but ends up wanting to play for Turkey. He feels a connection there, I think. And Artur would be another one that he moves there. I believe he marries an American. He feels like his life is in America. It's a choice. You feel appreciated. You feel connected to that country. Going back to the, was it Aurelio? Was that his name? The German or the Brazilian? Elton. 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 Uh, if he had felt like left out by Brazil and he ended up playing the last five years of his career in Qatar and then felt like, yeah, I really like it. I feel like the people here really appreciate me. This is where I want to be. I don't really have an issue with that. When we start talking about younger players, this is where the, the, the fire truck of lawyers can prepare themselves. We're talking about youngsters from like uh, impoverished or yeah. like bad backgrounds who you're plucking up from obscurity for their physical characteristics and transporting them across international lines and giving them a lot of money. Like there are other words and phrases for that that uh, approximate human trafficking. And there is an element there of like, ah, there's a moment when a 14 year old, can they make that decision? Can they truly say like, yes, this is the place that I feel the most respected. This is the place that makes me feel at home. Like maybe, but you get into the idea of can they make that decision? Do they know? Are they being, I, I don't know, given all the opportunities? Are they getting the schooling and the education? And I think that's the stuff where it just starts to feel a little bit iffier. And I think th the past legacy of just throwing money at people to see if they'll play for Qatar factors into that. If it had always been this program, this humanitarian aid program where we're taking kids from refugee camps and impoverished areas right. and we're giving them an education and their families a better life – that feels more like a program that is meant for the good of humanity versus the good of the Qatari yeah. FA. 
and and the key part is the the condition of oh and you will have to play for the Qatari yep. national team that's that's the difference so if, if Qatar are going to these impoverished nations that they were scouting in Africa and as you say Taylor they have a, a a program there to give these kids education and so on but there's not that that condition attached then great but that condition, almost the principle of it feels like, regardless of whether there's exploitation going on there or not and whether these kids are getting treated well, the principle of it feels like emotional blackmail. And that's the bit that doesn't sit well with me at all. Yeah, because I don't imagine uh, players, like if they come from Ghana and go to the Aspire Academy, that they're being, like, given all the all these advantages and at the same time being told, like, but then go back to Ghana and play for them. I, I don't feel like that's the push they're getting. I feel like there's much more of a stay in Qatar, represent Qatar. It's a wonderful place. And I think from a Qatari perspective, it's a very small population. You've got to find ways to be competitive and you want to look like you are a capable footballing nation at the World Cup. I understand all of that. And again, I don't really have an issue with the naturalization pro- process if it's reflective of organic movement of organic belief i think chavi managing in qatar felt a connection to qatar i think he liked it there i think pep had the same thing and and if that's how you feel then that's how you feel but that's an informed decision based on informed consent and i think that's where i just i do have that little iffiness about qatar and we can talk more about that now we can talk more about that later but i think it it factors into my my thinking because I think, on the whole, this Qatar team is an exciting team. They play interesting Mm. soccer. I think they could be a really fun team. But knowing some of that background just clouds it a little bit. But that's, I guess, a cloudiness that I am okay with because it feels truthful. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to provide a, a little bit of, of um, balance, I, I, I guess. that It feels like Qatar has chilled out a little bit with the, the naturalization mm-hmm. process, at least recently. So certainly 10, 12 years ago, that seemed to be the core of their, their strategy for, for building a team ready for the 2022 World Cup. And even as recently as, as 2015, there was a, a match played against Algeria where the majority of the, of the team, the squad, were made up of, of players who were born outside of Qatar. And there's quotes from Seth Blatter about how he was unhappy with how Qatar were essentially gaming gaming the rules since then as I say it feels like that naturalization process um, at least on the public face of things has been uh, toned down and it feels like the, the players unless I'm mistaken I think that the current national team maybe doesn't even have any players who were who were born outside of Qatar or certainly there they are few in, in numbers so I think that's maybe something we should mention is the team that will play at this World Cup maybe won't include those naturalized players but Going back a little while, it was certainly something that Qatar did in preparation for this tournament. Do you think it won't? I feel like it a will. lot of the names It will, just seen. maybe not as many, right? Yeah, I mean, okay. Roro, you're, you're looking at several players who are mm-hmm. not born in Qatar, but have come and gone through this process. But, Graham, to your point, it is not... It is maybe not as prevalent as it has been before, but this team it will still be undeniably shaped by some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think they'll also be undeniably shaped by uh, other experiences they get along the way. And this is my way of transitioning us to talking about uh, Eupen or Eupen in Belgium. Where, did you all do any reading on that club? Because that was interesting to me. Yeah, a I little didn't. bit. So this is, I believe, Almoz Ali played played for them, and he is Qatar star number nine. He is he's up top in their three five two that Felix Sanchez runs. I believe he played for them. He is not the only one. I think Akram Afif played for them yep. as well, Taylor, who is the the undeniable star. I think he could be legitimately if we get to the World Cup and we're having conversations about what the Qatar team looks like on the field. He is the best player on this team, hands down. He is a phenomenal soccer player. 
he certainly played for UPenn, which has, again, connections to Qatar and Taylor. They are owned by the Aspire Zone Foundation. Yep. Yep. They are owned by Qatar. And now it suddenly makes a lot of sense because, yeah, there's a lot of players who have gone on loan to UPenn or played there. And I think that was meant to be the launch pad for Qatari players to then make that move to Europe. And it seems like it has stayed that, but for the most part has become an opportunity to send Qatari players to get European experience and then bring them back. And again, it's it's a competitive advantage. It just feels odd at the same time because it's a team that got promoted to the top flight, I believe, and then they sacked their manager and made a bunch of changes and changed the structure of the club. And it, it feels like an investment project more than uh, developing a team. Again, it, it's a, a thing they're allowed to do, and it's probably smart business by the Aspire Zone Foundation. But it's another one where I kept seeing all these players linked with Ayupen or Yupen, and then trying to figure out, like, what did they just have a really strong business connection? Oh, they own them. Now it makes more sense. Yeah, that's that's the tie-in, right? It is kind of mm-hmm. football group-esque, but it, like like I think about yeah. CFG or I think about Red Bull. But again, you run into this fact that Qatar have basically turned their national team yeah. into a, a club setup. So in in that way, it still is football group-esque, but it's just different and, and weird compared to how everyone else in the world is doing that. Joe, let's talk about the team itself then, because as I said, you and I talked about them a bit when we saw them at the Gold Cup. We've seen them in other competitions, including the Copa America, where they finished, I believe, 10th in that tournament. What uh, should we be expecting from them in terms of style of play and tactics? Sure. So their manager to start there is Felix Sanchez, who was a coach at La Masia in, in Spain, Barcelona's academy. And then he moved over to the Aspire Academy in Qatar at age 30 and has been a part working his way up through Aspire and then through some different some levels of, of Qatar national teams and now is in charge of the senior team. And they're a fun team tactically. Like they're a really easy team to watch and enjoy playing which honestly would be a shock if they weren't, given all of the things we've talked about and all of the time they spent playing together. They, they usually play in a 3-5-2. They're clean in possession, aggressive center backs in that back three, a, a real playmaking, attacking midfielder in Akram Afifo. I already mentioned he's got poofy hair, and you can't miss him when you watch him play. He is electric to watch on the field. He's a lot of fun. They're well-drilled in midfield. They're not always going to high-press a crazy amount, but they will press. They, they generally will look to attack and transition quickly after they win the ball, but they're also perfectly happy to build from the back and possess. It's, it's, a, it's a good team. This is a strong team. They're not, in terms of their group, if, if we're talking about what we're expecting from them, they're not going to light the world on fire in, in Qatar at, at this tournament on their home soil. But they will do some damage. I mean, this team is capable of getting results against anyone. Yeah. They made the Gold Cup semifinals. They almost, I don't want to say they almost beat the U.S. in the semifinal of the Gold Cup in 2021 because that's not exactly how that game went down. But at the same time, they were dangerous in that game and, and they mm-hmm. neutralized the U.S. for large stretches. Granted, not the, the first choice U.S. team at that tournament after the Nations League. But still, this team can play. They can play and they're fun to watch. And it's weird to talk about that along with all the other sort of icky stuff we've talked about. But that is the reality. They are, uh, they are a fun team. Yeah, I, I don't think Qatar should be written off in terms of, of, of getting out of the, the group. They do have tournament experience, and I think in general, host nations are or can be dangerous at tournaments. Look at South Korea making the, the semifinals of the 2002 World Cup and Rus- Russia knocking out Spain at the last World Cup. Host nations can occasionally do unexpected things, and I think that the Group A draw that Qatar have got as well isn't the worst for them. Obviously, they were a pot one team, so a, a good draw was, was a possibility, but... There is a, there is a chance for them to to make it the the knockout rounds. I, I think that would that would still be an overachievement when you look at the teams in in Group A. But 
it's not beyond the realms of possibility. And that, that opening night game against Ecuador, I think, is going to tell us a lot because if they if Qatar fail to win that match, I think it's it's unlikely that they will they will get out of the group. But as Joe mentions, they've they've got a, a an interesting team, some some players in there who are, are, are experienced. Hassan Al Hedos, who's the captain, he's got 163 caps, and I think Ooh. most of them came in the last year, given the number of uh, matches that Qatar <laughs> have have played. Actually, going back through looking through their their squad, there does seem to be some variance in the squad between what they used at the Gold Cup last year, which had six non-Qatari-born players. So mm. that's maybe closer, actually, to what they will have at the World Cup. The, the squad they used this summer only had two, and that was the squad that I, w- I was looking at. So you guys are probably correct to be uh, still <laughs> concerned about the number of naturalised players. It seems I was looking at a slightly more homegrown squad. I mean, if, if it means that they've sort of like had to, to make some moves to get their team into a somewhat strong position to then develop younger players to fill it out and then keep themselves in a strong position. I think that's like, that to me is a slightly more natural approach to things. So, and I think when they've been able to develop some of the talents they have, like Afif, you mentioned him, Joe, and um, Amoaz Ali, those are players, those are their two, I think, highest valued players according to transfer marks, but also you watch them play, Afif especially. He's got great passing vision. He's got great control. I agree with you, Joe. There are players on this team that will make them exciting, and then there are players on this team that will make them defensively solid. And I think a lot of that chemistry and consistency that's built with the number of friendlies that Graham has mentioned uh, will help them uh, perform at that next level. But I also think the familiarity at club level is going to help them when you have... Uh, I forget how many it is. I think it's 11 Al-Sad players on their most recent roster, and that's an Al-Sad team that has won 16 league titles since the Qatari League began. Uh, That is double what the next best team has been able to achieve. I think you're looking at a team that has a lot of familiar faces playing for a couple of the bigger clubs who are occasionally coached by some pretty high-profile managers. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what the Qatar Stars League, which is the the official name of of the Qatari domestic uh, division. I'm interested to see what they do after the World Cup because actually, if you go back to 2003, which is obviously seven years before Qatar wins the the bid for the the 2022 World Cup, the Qatari FA gave every club in that league 10 million dollars to boost the quality of the league and and spend that money on on players. And a number of big players moved to Qatar. It wasn't called the Qatar Stars League at that time, but they moved to, to the Qatari League. You had Pep Guardiola, the De Boer brothers, Claudio Canigia. Romario, Fernando Hierro, Batistuta, Raul slightly later on, Marcel Desi. So these are all A-list football stars. Obviously, they'd moved there towards the end of their career. But then it seems like since the, the award of the World Cup, the, the, the purpose of the, the Qatar Stars League has been, as we've already referenced, to produce players for the national team. Teams are only allowed, I think, three foreign players, and then you're allowed an AFC player and then a, a one union of, of Arab football player. And then the rest have to be homegrown. So that has probably almost certainly helped the national team with a view to the to producing a team for this World Cup, this upcoming World Cup that will be competitive. And I think they probably succeeded in that. But once that World Cup uh, passes, is the Qatar Stars League going to become more of a focus for Qatar in terms of producing a, a, a league in its own right that is worth watching? Because I think if you look at the three leagues and the three oil-rich new money nations in the Gulf, 
the Qatar Stars League is probably the, the, the weakest if you're comparing it to the UAE Pro League and the Saudi Professional League. If you look at the AFC Champions League, UAE and Saudi Arabia have much better success in winning that, that tournament than uh, any team from, from Qatar. I think you actually have to go back to is it 2011 until the last time Al Sadd won the AFC Champions League. So I'm interested to see if that focus has shifted after this World Cup from the national team to the domestic league. You have to think it will shift at least to an extent, right? I mean, I think it would be a missed opportunity by Qatar, a, a nation on the soccer side that doesn't really seem like it's missed any opportunity so far. I, I think it would be a missed opportunity for them not to shift partial focus to towards elevating the league. That's That's a lasting entity, right? I mean, we hear this in discussions about the U.S. in 2026, about soccer in North America and, and more specifically in the United States, about how MLS is going to take advantage of that, right? And, and the timing of the TV deal to to affect or, or to capitalize on some of that momentum and, and whether that was done or not. This is a, These are real conversations that are being had in the United States about how do we capitalize in a broader sense outside of the national team on 2026. Qatar will certainly be having those same conversations with the investment and, and the raw financial power that they have. There is no reason why they shouldn't start pumping some of those resources and, and continue, right? They've already started to pump some of those resources into the Qatari Stars League because that is something that will have a lasting impact and can continue to to carry on some of the momentum they're trying to get from the World Cup in 2022 into the future. I, I think James Rodriguez is still playing in Qatar, which feels like someone almost forgot that he was still there. Maybe someone should go and pick him up. <laughs> Whew, I, I did forget about that. If you all had to guess, do you think they will continue to invest in their domestic league and that they'll continue to grow after the World Cup? Or do you feel like this has all been with an eye towards having a strong team in 2022 that can be at least somewhat competitive and then after the World Cup, we'll move on to other things? I, I think they will continue to develop. Mm-hmm. What exactly that looks like, I don't know. But I would be surprised with the... And maybe this is my naivete talking. I don't know. I'd, I'd be surprised if they spent all of this money just to sort of let it ride and not not continue to build yeah. and develop. You have some, some pretty influential world soccer figures in Qatar right now of different backgrounds. Felix Sanchez is not a, a world-renowned coach. But he's got experience at the best historically soccer academy in the world in La Masia. You have Tim Cahill in, a, in an authoritarian role at Aspire Academy. I mean, they have figures that have been mm-hmm. brought in and, and bought in to the project. And I, I don't think that's going to stop the day, November 19th or whatever day after the World Cup final. I think it's going to continue on past that, at least to a degree. Yeah, uh-huh. I think it would be weird if they if they dropped everything with the national team. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if the the investment in terms of a, a manager. I always I always had this feeling that Pep Guardiola would be Qatar manager. It was actually one of my my bold predictions for twenty twenty two World Cup would, was that yeah, Guardiola would be the Qatar national team manager. I don't think that is that is likely to happen. But um, yeah, I think Qatar will continue to invest in their national team. It's just about whether some more investment goes into the league as well. All right. Well, we shall keep an eye on that. We will keep an eye on Qatar, both their national team and the country as a whole, as we get closer to the 2022 World Cup. For now, uh, Graham Ruthven, Joe Lowry, anything else to add on the Qatar national team before we call this one an episode of 101? Nice kits. That's what I would say. <laughs> I like the color. Retweet. Jo- <laughs> Retweet from Joe. Graham Ruthven, thank you for that and many other things that you said today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Joe Lowry, thank you, my friend. Right back at you, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all so much. We'll talk to you all again next week. 